0: Support for this program comes from Tiger Lily Communications, public relations, content creation, publicity, and marketing for creatives. We make you look even better. Find out more at T-I-G-E-R-L-I-L-Y communications.com.
1: And welcome to Speak On It, the podcast where the creatives tell their stories about what they do and why they do it. I'm Felicia Hodges, and today I'm with the musical production duo of Dan McCullum and Doug Ramsey, collectively known as After Six Productions. Bassist Dan and guitarist Doug create their own music as well as music for other artists, aiming to build a highly successful, internationally respected and connected production organization. A goal is to partner with artists to create music that stands the test of time and that is listened to years beyond the original debut. Welcome Dan and Doug, and thanks for joining me today.
0: You're welcome, Felicia. It's good to be here. Glad to be here.
1: So let's talk about After Six Productions, how you guys met, where the name came from, all that good stuff.
0: Go ahead, Dan. You can start off. I guess I
2: started in the very beginning, uh, I guess it was done second year, my first year, uh, at uh University of Bridgeport in Connecticut. I think I was a, a two a floor up or two floors up. I can't think I can't remember. Playing my bass in, in the dorm. You know, so we play guitar and everything. And so uh we just started from there. You know, we uh found very little time basically after six or after dinner when we got time to get together. And uh I think that's really where the name initially uh kind of spend off of but then doug you know he uh thought of a more creative uh as far as the image we wanted to reflect and so you know he thought more about it and then he you know he mentioned about the um after six formal wear you know you know going through magazines whatever and that when that was uh that was a it like clicked and i guess that's like i can say it that way Like clicked
0: how we came up with the name of After Six Productions. I remember it happened at 1497 Iranistan Avenue. That's an apartment in a house that Dan and I were sharing. Actually, it was the second apartment. And we needed a ne- we needed another name. And we were thinking about the kind of music that we aspired to write and the kind of music that we were currently writing. And I actually had an issue of uh, GQ magazine. I was just flipping through it. And uh, we both grew up liking the the group Chic, just the way they presented themselves, the type of music they were writing at that time. And I happened to open to an ad in GQ, and it was for the After Six formal wear. So I came up with the name After Six Productions, and as Dan said, it clicked, and we used that name from that point on.
2: And, and, and the interesting thing that Doug mentioned about Chic was that uh, I uh, met the uh, bassist uh, of sheep, Bernard Edwards, while in high school, my girlfriend back then babysat for you know his children. It was just just coincidence that our style was not exactly a chic image, but along those lines.
1: But dang, Dan, how loud was your bass that he heard it? What, like two floors down?
2: Uh, it it was it was louder than it should have been. Put it that way, <laughs> But sure. Uh, yeah, because we had a, we had a, um, there was a, pop, a dorm policy about playing in the room. You know, it was, um, it was loud enough, I'll put it
0: that way. Well, I think what, what it was that the door was open and somebody heard me playing as well. You know, those are hard, those are hard, not hard wood floors, but the hard floors. Well, a lot of stuff reflects. So if you stand, if you're there with your door open playing, obviously some somebody's going to hear. It. And I think I. I was on Dan's floor and I actually happened to hear him playing. I think that's where the initial connection started to form.
1: How did you each get started with your instruments?
0: (laughs) The story goes for me actually is uh, there was this very popular show, one of many actually, but I use this as an example, because it's what I remember. A show called Soul Train hosted by Don Cornelius. And at that time, in that time frame, there was a lot of live music. Not only were records out in R&B, but that was the decade or the time frame I should say of the band. So not only were there singers, but they were actual bands playing. And um, to be honest with you, I used to watch Soul Train just like a lot of us did. And I thought being a musician was really cool, but I thought the coolest musician out of the whole band was the guitarist. So I said, I'm going to pick up that instrument because number one, the guitarist was cool. And from what I see, the guitarist is getting the girls too. So I was 14 years old and I said, this is, (laughs) it's a done deal. So I picked up guitar and I self, I was self-taught. I asked my dad to um, buy me a guitar. And there were, from what I remember, at least when I was that age, there were no, major music stores like Guitar Center um, that I knew of, but there was Orange Records in Orange, New Jersey on Main Street. And they sold vinyl, 45, 78s, cassettes, the whole bit. But they had these cheap, cheap, cheap guitars and amplifiers, like I'm talking 42 bucks. And I begged him to give me the guitar and he got it. And I just started sitting down with the radio and picking up stuff off the radio. My friends at the time was, yo, you coming outside? It's like, nah, I'm inside, you know, playing trying to learn this stuff. We didn't have a band in the neighborhood at that time. But when I started playing guitar, everybody else, and these guys were like two and three years younger than me, they started picking up an instrument. So before long, we had a neighborhood band. And we were playing all the R&B covers that were on the radio. So that's basically how I got started.
2: For me, my first instrument actually was the flute. And that was not the instrument of my choice. I really originally wanted to play the clarinet. But I couldn't get the the mouthpiece correctly. So I remember a music teacher just snatching it from me. And, you know, that was kind of discouraging. So, so, you know, uh, hand me the flute. I had to be like nine years old or something like that. I played, I did that up until I think um, junior high school. And then um, it was one summer, I never forget, I heard Strawberry Letter 23. When I heard it, I thought that was the funkiest, neatest sound that there was. And it was more so the bass that I really liked for the most part. You know, I, I really liked it, you know. So uh, I got my first call it, you know, no frills no-name bass guitar. There was a, a wholesale store called Consumer Distributors that sold everything, you know, from hair dryers to, I don't know, curling, I don't know, whatever you could find, you know, get in a consumer distributor. And so like that, I got a, a bass and um, I started from there and I wanted to learn Strawberry Letter to, that was a that was song I had to learn and everything. And I didn't even know who the artists were at the time, like Doug got together uh, later on with guys in high school, because back then playing in the band was the thing. I mean, you could play in the band and you could sing a little bit, too. And Like Doug said, girls are going to come, you know, one year. uh, because I had a little bit of a little bit of a high voice back in the day. We did a, a Jackson's tune or Jackson 5 tune. And I don't know how I pulled it off, but I sang and played it and everything. And it was really funny because after that, girls would come to me and say, can I have your autograph? That was my introduction into playing music and everything.
1: So you start your individual musical journeys. And Dan, you have your bass. Doug, you have a guitar. You guys meet. And eventually, after six productions is born. But somewhere along the line, a demo was made, I hear, right? What happened to that?
2: (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. Uh and when we did the demo, we thought we were doing something. We were emulating artists that we followed, I call it what it is, you know, uh back then. I mean, and then it was uh Minneapolis Sound was becoming very, very popular. Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. We mimicked that. Uh we mimicked um Cameo. Uh we sent it out. Uh then we thought we were like, making it. I, th- I thought we were going to like, boom, make it, you know, but uh, we learned it doesn't work that way. You know, Really does not work that way. But then the interesting thing was that, um, uh, my girlfriend, like I said, my girlfriend at the time knew knew Bernard and you know, I had met Bernard before and I was over his house one day and he said, you know, I heard about you guys I said, could you let me hear what you guys are doing? So we did. He really didn't make any comments on that. But what out of that, what happened was that his son who people know now as focus, joined us and we gave him a shot, you know, we gave him a shot to play with us, not because of his dad, because he was a talented kid at the time. And so, you know, we, he joined us and then we, I think we did a, we did a second demo. And one of the songs that we did was actually a remake of one of Chic's songs called I Want Your Love, which was pretty nice, you know, and like I said, his son actually was the lead on, on producing that one. But uh, it came out pretty funky, I have to say.
1: And we'll be back with more right after this. Stay with us.
2: The Groove Pater. Podcast, talk show, and movie review. Where we break down the black exploitation era, the cinematic genre, the exploitation of the black culture, and experience through film and media.
0: We'll also dive into the cast, the subgenres, the TV shows, and the music. Outside of the films,
2: we'll view some critical signs of the time and what these stories meant then and now. From entertainment to society to economics.
0: The Groove Pater.
1: Catch a new episode each Thursday on hudsey.tv. Facebook and thegroovedpavement.com. And we're back with more from After Six Productions Dan McCullum and Doug Ramsey on recording their second demo as young artists and producers and the lessons they learned from that experience. We did it at um,
0: Gantech Studios, it was a 12 track studio. Uh, from what I remember, at that time, the second demo, I think he was charging a dollar a track. So that was like $12 an hour, I think it was. And uh, as Dan said, we went and recorded that cover tune and a couple other tunes that that we wrote uh, with another keyboardist who grew up with Dan. And Bernard Edwards Jr., a.k.a. Focus, was involved in that. He had a couple songs as well. We actually still have the... Uh, all the songs from that demo on, we had to transfer it from two inch tape to CD. We spent quite a bit of time, at least I spent quite a bit of time last year, way before the pandemic, converting all this audio files to uh, all these audio files burned to archive, which is CD. So we still have that stuff from the late 80s, was it? We're dating ourselves now.
1: Look, like y'all did that when you mentioned uh, cassettes and and uh, did you say Ajax? <laughs> Vinyl?
2: At that time, you know, when money was tight. You know, I call it for what it is. You know, we were not where we are now as far as financially. So we really learned to do our homework prior to going into a session. And so that, that really, that discipline, I think that's where we gained that discipline from where before you go in to record, you make sure you you've done your homework and you're ready to, to hit the ground running.
0: And simply the technology today was obviously not the technology back then. So the whole recording process was different than what it is today. We can just open up a laptop, open up your DAW, digital audio workstation of choice. You have all these samples you can whip up together and pretty much throw into a sequence, loop it a couple times and that's what a lot of the major hits are today, but we're not going to go down that road. I'm simply saying that the recording process was different. It was all analog for the most part. So it was a different way you had to go and approach your studio recording. And again, one thing that's not changed, you pay for studio time today the same way you paid for studio time back then. So either you use it efficiently or you don't.
1: Can you talk a little bit about some of the other musical projects that you guys have been involved in, either individually or collectively, and more importantly, what you've gained from them?
2: I worked on uh, the the, uh, the artists. Um, it was uh, reggae. You know, that was my first instance of uh, playing a playing, uh, bass on a reggae tune. And initially, I, I made it sound too much like R&B. And then... Uh, the engineer sat me to the side and said, you know, this is not what they want. They're paying you, you have to play what they're paying you for. And so I played it exactly how they wanted it. And so that because that was, that was a long lesson for me. And uh then got to sit in on sessions with uh recording sessions, far on this is on the production side of things, uh, with Bernard and like what I said with his son, famous um studio called Power Station, which which also coined was the group that Bernard, they put together called Power Station. I learned a lot from just being a, on the production side of things. You learn a lot uh, when you get to be behind the scenes, working with those who have been there and who have really kind of perfected the art of, of, of production.
1: I was thinking more along the lines of the concept project that you guys put together, "What Love Is." Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: That started with a. Um, had the title song. Um, um, I was into my feelings. I'll say it that way. And uh, I would, I went down to my studio and I just had just the bass line and the drums. And basically a, a, a quasi-drum track for the most part. And I sang a, a dummy lyric to it and everything. And I, and I li- listened back to it and said, hey, I like this. And I called Doug up. I said, listen, I got this. And I think we should do something with it. And so he said, no, no, shoot it over, you know. So I uh, sent him the MP, a uh, rougher the MP3. We really didn't look at taking it seriously until we did our rendition of an artist's uh, Shadia. Well, it takes two. And uh, when we did that, then we, then we started really taking it serious as far as, well, we can do this for ourselves. And then we really pushed forward on the What love This Project.
0: And after we finished going through the motions of what everybody goes through in order to produce a track, I think um, we decided that What Love Is was the next step. All the tracks from the beginning to the end told a chronological story about boy meets girl, boy and girl fall in love, boy and girl have issues, boy and girl break up, boy and girl get back together and um, they live happily ever after. I think Dan and I decided that when, when the What Love Is project was in production, we want the happily ever after thing to happen because there was not a whole lot of songs that were really talking about you know, a positive relationship, whether it's beginning, middle, or end. So we decided to conceptualize what love is along those lines from beginning to end.
2: This is just my philosophy as far as songwriting goes. There's a thousand and one ways that a person can say, I love you without saying those three words. Yeah. And so I think the what love this project kind of did that. It wasn't dogging men. It wasn't dogging women or anything like that. It wasn't a lot of, it wasn't drama. It was more so, I guess, a person being honest with how they're feeling. Just, just basically talking about that feeling, that emotion. And that's, I guess, the title, what love is talking about that, that emotion.
1: I know that took you um, a while, not just because it was difficult to write or putting everything together, but life happened. How long did it take you guys from conception to beginning it, to getting everything together to here it is?
2: The actual writing of the tunes took us I'm going to long be beyond less than a year to write the tunes. Now we're talking about you've written the tunes, and so now you're going to record and the production side comes. I think that's where we had got the hiccup because initially we took the attitude, well, we don't have a schedule, so we let things get in the way. I'm not going to say, you know, life does happen, but it was more so how we are approaching, how we tackle it. And so that took us a while. So then that second phase, as far as that that long stretch, which Doug and I will, I can't remember, it took us years. And I don't even want to talk about the number of years. but it took us years to put the, to put it completely together. We nearly didn't set milestones as far as our targeted dates sink or swim. This is, this has to happen. And so um, that was a big lesson learned. So, you know, we definitely don't want to take door down that road again.
0: Well, I think, I think what took us so long was we had to audition vocalists because this was going to be a vocal album we ended up auditioning 55 vocalists. So that took a while. And then we had to narrow that. We had to narrow them down to um, who was going to appear on the album. And this being the first time without any sort of legal representation, we decided to draw up all our contracts. And the approach was going to be a win-win situation. But even then we were so green. We really didn't know what the legal ramifications of these contracts that we were drawing up were really about we just wanted to say basically tell the vocalist if we win you win and you know that's a valiant effort because we wanted total team approach we didn't want to seem like we were going to take somebody's material and shut them out once we recorded everything and released it but still not being not understanding really the the music entertainment business The contracts were long and they were solid, but they were still lacking a lot. So it took us years to do. Like Dan said, the main problem we had was we did not work backwards. Initially we said, we're doing this all on our own. We don't have we didn't we don't have a record company con. We don't have a record contract signed. So we're not bound to any record company saying you have to release it at this point. That was a big mistake. So anyway, again, yeah, it took us a long time for those various reasons. And I think in a position where you're not a recording musician, is not your bread and butter, you're not an artist, what essentially has to happen is you need to treat it like a job. From that drop date, you need to work backwards to make sure that you meet that drop date. So if your bread and butter is in the office or elsewhere and you're doing this thing after work, there's really no other way to actually move forward than to treat it like a second job.
2: You know, it's like you know when you look at the clocks that are I'm about to get off and they get to my other other gig and treat it as such. You know, it's almost like um, a couple of my friends still do it that I used to play with still still uh, play out. You know, in little venues in Connecticut, and they do that as a second job. So basically, when that clock hits, like 8 o'clock or whatever having 8 p.m., they're setting up ready and ready to perform, but that's like their sec, like their second job. And the studio, is a little bit different, and I think one of the, I'd say advantages or disadvantages of having a home studio is exactly that. It's in the home. Uh, you have the convenience of, you know, we have the night going into your studio because, you know, it's right there. You don't have to get in a car or go anywhere. Like Doug said, treated like a second job, you know.
1: As you can hear, Dan and Doug are pretty prolific gentlemen with a lot to share. We'll hear more from them, including their shift from making music to producing others and their choice not to earn their living from inside the music industry in our next episode. Don't forget to follow Speak On It on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Vimeo. Feel free to email us at TigerLilyCommunications at mail justmail.com to let us know what you think. The music you hear is called Please Irene by Lynn Riley and the World Mix. They'll be back to performing in real live venues again soon, so check out the calendar at lynnriley.com for upcoming dates. Hope to catch you again soon. Stay safe out there.